over time, so into, into my 60s, I just have been thinking more about what matters to me, how I want people to think about me. I don't really want people to think about me, oh, he was executive editor at, at Time Magazine, or he was a this or a that. That's not who I am. And there are these values called eulogy values. And those are basically, you know, if you and I were to be at each other's funerals now, what would we want people to be saying about us? Yeah. I'm hoping that people might say things like, you know, he was kind, he was a good listener, he loved his family, whatever whatever they may be. But that's kind of a real shift in how you live your life. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am so delighted to welcome Stephen Petro to the My Fourth Act podcast. Stephen is an award-winning journalist and book author who is best known for his Washington Post and New York Times essays on aging, health, and civility. He's also an opinion columnist for USA Today, where he writes about civil discourse and manners. Stephen's wonderful 2019 TED Talk, Three Ways to Practice Civility, has been viewed nearly 2 million times and translated into 16 languages. Stephen is the author of six books, many of them on LGBTQ lifestyle matters, his latest book, Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old, is just out. It is a poignant fourth act and fifth act page turner, and I cannot wait to discuss some of the delicious details with Stephen. Welcome. I am so glad to be with you today. Thank you for having me as a guest. Oh, it is my pleasure. As I've told you before we recorded, I'm, I just enjoyed your book so much, and I want to get to it quickly. But before we do, a question I ask in every podcast, and it feels pertinent to our conversation. Who who did you want to be when, when you grew up, when you were a young boy? Did you have an idea of who you wanted to be? You know, I, I did. And I'm going to tell you, it was it was this meteorologist at WCBX <laughs> in Manhattan, Gordon Barnes. And I was a little... 13-year-old National Weather Service reporting station. And I would call into the city every day to like give the time low temperature. And my dad was like, who's calling Manhattan every day? It was a toll call. <laughs> oh, that's me. And, um, and then I was calling Gordon Barnes every day. And so it's, it's kind of crazy. I don't know what this tells us, but that's the truth. Well, the truth is the truth. Did you have a little crush on Gordon Barnes or did you just admire his expertise? I found that science was something I was very proficient in. Yeah. And I guess I derived a sense of self-worth and self-value from that. And it was something I could do by myself. You know, I'm kind of now extrapolating in my mind. You know, my dad had me playing Pop Warner football, which was completely the antithesis of who yeah. I was as you know, I, I can't even say I was a young gay boy. I didn't even know I was gay, but I knew I was different. So I think I found safety in yeah. the weather. <laughs> it makes sense. 
thought I was weird, but they thought I was weird because I had all these maps of hurricanes that I did every every day. And so that was a safe weird. It, my version of that was we travel a lot on childhood and I loved studying maps and mm-hmm. studying maps and understanding where things were was incredibly comforting. So I completely understood what you just said. Did you, you're 63 now, and you're very open about that in your book. You and I are going to celebrate our age in this conversation. Let me just claim that up front. When you were younger, did you have any sense of what 63 might look like, what people that age were like, how they lived, or was that just completely removed from your reality as a young person? Well, I think many among our generation did look sort of fast forward ahead to see what older life looked like. And usually that meant what was it like for our parents and, and their friends and so on. And you know, it, was, it was a very different setup than it is now, if only because people of our generation are living so much longer. Yeah. And we have generally been so much more active and have eaten healthier. But I really, I really had the the notions of you know fifty plus or sixty plus being a time of decline and withdrawal and and disconnection and therefore initially approaching it with um, trepidation. Now I have to get to your book <laughs> because some people might read your book and it might induce more trepidation, <laughs> or it might induce some comfort, or both, they, or, or both. both. You know, as I mentioned, stupid things I won't do when I get old. And you have a whole list of stupid things that you are affirming you won't do. Things you won't do now, you won't do tomorrow, and you won't do at the end. Mm -hmm. The first one, and so many are classic, is I want to just open the conversation and you fill it in any way you wish. I won't color my hair even if it worked for Diane Sawyer. So it's a a lovely title (laughs) for that little nugget. So how how have you reconciled your own hair coloring? Well, before I answer that, do you mind if I tell you a little bit about the genesis of the book? No, no, go for it. So while I was, you know, having this great trepidation about what I was going to become when I got older, my parents were moving into their 70s. And so I started keeping a list. There were 10 things and there were 20 and there were 50 and there were 100. And I mean, there there were things like sort of on the smaller side, I will pick up the throw rugs when I start tripping over them. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I won't forego a hearing aid when I can't hear anyone. Uh, I won't compromise my independence by giving a little bit of it up earlier on. And, and then that became an essay in the New York Times, which got a lot of attention. It was interesting was people started sending me their lists. Mm-hmm. I got two, 300 lists and I thought... This is the thing that people are doing because we are telling ourselves we want to do things differently and we have to do things better. And then that became this book. And yes, um, that chapter, um, that chapter about me and Diane Sawyer is, is the first one. I had the the privilege of co-hosting a benefit with her probably about 20 years ago now for the National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association. Mm -hmm. And as we're getting ready to go out on stage, we're kind of just joking. And she's, I said, it's like, what are your tips for being beautiful and being older? And she said, well, you know, anchors don't get older. They only get blonder. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's great advice. So I went and I got my hair colored and it was a disaster. 
And my friend, my, my best friend, you know how you always worry your friends aren't going to tell you the truth? Well, my best friend Vince said to me, Stephen, you know, you look like a trashy secretary from Staten Island. And he meant no offense to secretaries or to Staten Island, but I had become this like all over honey blonde, you know. And so one of, one of my lessons was, you know, don't go to a hair colorist unless you can afford to go to Diane Sawyer's. Uh, but the other was sort of this road to acceptance and authenticity. And even though we're on a podcast today, this is now my natural silver hair, and which is a lot easier and I have fewer chemicals in it. And, you know, and I learned the lesson that many, many men have learned, which is we're kind of like very binary. Suddenly we have brown hair again and we had, you know, silver hair. And I think women do it much better than men. For our listeners, Stephen and I are recording with video, so I can attest to his very authentic <laughs> very looking authentic. gray hair with many different shadings to it. It actually has a lot of character. It's white. It's non-white. It's sort of the classic, beautiful gray that you want. You know? Well, um, it, it is what it is. <laughs> I am who I am. Well, related to that, and I, I'm so picking my own favorites that jumped mm -hmm. out that made me chuckle as I read your book. You, another one of your wants is I won't I won't lie about my age even on dating apps. And any of our listeners who've been on dating apps know that game. Oh boy! Tell us some stories about that because you tell about yourself, but you also tell about other people and friends and yeah. the rationale for lying about our age. Talk to us about that. I got divorced from my husband about three years ago now. We'd been together for 14 and there had been websites and I think match.com had existed prior to our getting together. But this whole world of apps was something you know, that was brand new. So three, four years ago, so I was actually 59. Yeah. <laughs> Who would ever believe somebody was actually 59? You, you know, they're, they're lying if they, if they say that. So I was pushing it down a little bit and then it felt uncomfortable. And, and, and then when I would meet people, they would say, so are you really whatever age I had said? I'd say, well, no, I'm actually 59. It became awkward and it became like, well, that's the first topic of conversation. And that's a problem. So I did an experiment. I was on three different apps and I was, so I became three different ages. I was yep. younger and then I was, then I was my real age and I was something in between. And what, what I learned was it really didn't matter except to me. If someone who's younger was looking for an older person, a daddy, you know, I was going to qualify whether I was 59 or 62. If they wanted someone age appropriate, that was fine. And if they didn't want someone quote unquote old, I was gone. And I was done. So that really kind of like pushed me to be 63 or whatever my age is. And in next week, I'll be 64. You know, and, and, and part of my interviewing was a fellow I had gone to college with. Mm -hmm. He suddenly appeared on, on one of these. And, but he was now 10 years younger than me. <laughs> wow. I was actually like, wow, you look terrible for that age. You yes. look fine for our age. Yeah. And I said to him, well, so how does that work out for you? Kind of like paused and everything. He said, well, when I meet people, I always tell them my real age. Uh -huh. And then what happens? I said, and he said, well, half of them get up and leave, <laughs> but half of them stay. You know, that was his strategy. You know, last I looked, he was still single. I'm still single too. So I, I you know, honesty may only go so far and uh, need a little bit of magic too. I was thinking of my own, this is a silly story from my own dating life, but I remember 
having your first date with a fellow who claimed to be 34. Mm-hmm. And when we met in person, he said, you know, I have to be honest, I'm actually 42. Mm-hmm. And my little voice went, no way this dude is 42, he's older. So I, I Googled him and we can find out everybody's age and he was 49. So even the admission of the real age was a lie because you've written so much about this and I don't want to get overly heavy on it, but, but beyond basic ageism, what, what is that about? So I'm going to put on my like scholarly hat. This Please book. do. This book is not a scholarly book at all, but it is informed by interviews and, and by research. Yes. And so there's a concept, it's called everyday ageism or casual ageism. Yeah. And, and it's different than the discrimination we might face in the workplace or in, in, in healthcare settings and so on. But it, it's kind of a cultural negativity. Over the last several years, friends, friends send me these memes and they think they're funny. They're not meant to support the notion of my book. I'm going to describe this for you because we're on a podcast. It, the title is TV Tray for Seniors. Then mm-hmm. it's an older guy and he's got the toilet seat around his head and he's using the toilet seat cover as his tray and he's you know he's cutting up his dinner don't laugh patent pending you're just upset that you didn't think of this great invention first so you know at first we'd say oh he he maybe that's a little bit funny but you know it's really not and um, and there's so many ways that these kind of messages are in the culture and part of it is the birthday cards that we send that I'm sending you a, a short birthday card because you won't have time to, to read. Along right. with me. And this has an impact on our health. It has an impact on our physical health, on our mental health. Yeah. And the more we internalize, internalize this kind of ageism, it also shortens our lives. And yeah. as you said last year, up to seven and a half years shorter, which is like the equivalent of being a smoker. So this is not good for us. And yeah. the support of the book is, is sort of raising the ways that we have internalized ageism and trying to show that there are paths to make different choices and think about ourselves differently or retrain ourselves to think differently. Yeah. Thank you for that take on that. Another one of my favorite mentions in your book, and it's funny because they're, to me, these mentions are all bittersweet because they're funny, but there is a, a reality behind it from many people. You, know, mm-hmm. you say, I won't limit myself to friends my own age. And, and you mentioned these wonderful cultural icons, the movie Harold and Maude with Ruth Gordon and, mm-hmm. and Anna Madrigal from Tales of the City. These wonderful, I'd say, quirky older gals <laughs> who are these bon vivants who basically say, screw uh, decorum, I'm just going to live my life. Right. And younger people are really drawn to that sensibility and they have these younger friends. How do we cultivate friends of different ages when we're aging together with our friends for a long time? Or if we're business people, we tend to socialize with people in our age brackets. And there's a natural confluence towards um, our own age. I think the word is intention. Yeah. We make it a priority. And I tell the story in the book about my friend, Denise Kessler, who was 33 years older than me. And she was 77 when I met her and I was in my late thirties and she was interviewing me ostensibly to be um, a tenant in a duplex of hers in San Francisco, but she was really interviewing me to be a friend. And she had set out to cultivate younger friends because her friends were getting older. Some of them were getting ill. And she feared also that her, her sisters would pass because they were older than she is. It was great for her to have this coterie of, of younger people. And it served her well because she was kind of last woman standing by the time she died at 98. Of course, for someone like me, 
it was also wonderful because I got the perspective of this friend had grown up 20 or 30 years earlier. And that really helped me to see the world in a different way. And it also, she provided a role model as well as, you know, one of the themes in the book is that there's a difference between being older or old age and being sick or ill. Yeah. We kind of played them in this culture, but they're really very different. And there were times when she was ill, but that never really overtook her sense of who she was. And she remained creative and engaged and connected to people. And so I saw that lesson and you know, I very intentionally have cultivated younger friends, inviting them over, doing things in the journalism world. You know, it, it's often a younger person's game. And so, you know, if not only for the need to understand new technologies, but new ways of seeing the world, it's, it's very useful. But you have to say to yourself, I wanna do this. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the, the My Fourth Act mastermind groups where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. You know, I, I was lying in bed yesterday morning and telling my partner that I'm, I'm interviewing this fellow, Stephen, tomorrow. And I mentioned the title of your book, Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old. And, and I read to him all of the things you won't do. So we're lying in bed and he's, he's chuckling. He's having reactions. You know, when I read one, there was a quizzical response. Uh-huh. Because, I think, no, because I think this is one that goes to just a really big fear. And you mentioned about your aging parents. I have a mother who's 96, mm-hmm. alive and well in a senior home. But it's one I won't be afraid to fall. And you actually put in a caveat. Yes, you read that right, because you probably knew that. Wow, that's a real fear for people. How do you dance with that one? How do you dance with that fear? So superficially, I think our generation knows, and we've seen, once an older person starts to fall, yeah. absolutely it's usually the beginning of a progression. Yeah. Okay. It's it's not a good progression. So we're all we're all you know at some point afraid of afraid of that. Part of what I'm trying to do for myself and then what I try to do in the book is confront those fears and also create workarounds or pass-throughs. Initially I was in a yoga class and we do inversions and you fall. Yes. And they teach us how to fall safely so you don't hurt yourself. And for the longest time, I wanted to write an essay about that, but it just didn't come together. And then we did a family vacation, my siblings and and their kids, to Hawaii. We were all surfing. I remember the instructor, the first thing he said was, you have to learn how to fall safely because if you're a beginner, all you're going to do is fall. And so he taught us. And so I actually learned that. There was so much freedom in not fearing the fall and knowing that I knew how to protect myself. In a way, that one is much more of a metaphoric one Yeah. how to confront fears, how to protect yourself, and how to maybe take some steps to prepare for them so that you will be better equipped when you come upon a precipice, literal or metaphoric. I love how you sort of use it as a metaphor for fear or facing fear or overcoming fear. When you talked about surfing, I became a pretty good windsurfer in my mid-30s. I lived in the Caribbean. And that was me really 
facing my physicality. And I realized because I was not a very athletic child and I want to prove myself that I could do it. And I realized windsurfing is not about brute body strength. It's about the balance on the board and the, the, so the dance with the water and the wind. However, as I'm thinking about project ahead, I'm 65 now, but if I see myself in my 70s or 80s, the question is that balancing that I feel like I can do on a surfboard. Will I do it as my body changes, right? Will I be able to do balance similarly? And I don't know because that'll be discovered as we all get older, right? In our own way. It will be. And of course, for some, there will be physical limitations. But I remember the surf instructor said to me, your problem is not physical, it's mental. Yeah. Yeah. You're afraid and you need to get over the fear. And once I did get over the fear, it was fine. Actually, it was fun to fall in those circumstances because I wasn't going to get hurt. I think as I take that, you know, sort of into the future, I'm going to keep that same same attitude about it and be mindful and also realize there will be times when physicality does play yeah. a part and yeah. to listen and to listen to my body that way. One of the milestones that not everybody but many people face is the need for a walker or that kind of assistance. And you have one of your wants is I, I won't let a walker ruin my style. Mm-hmm. And then you add, but I'll still use it. I just remember my mom loves her walker now, but boy, did she resist it tooth and nail for years. Talk about the style part and talk about the making peace with having a walker. And because it's easy for you and I to say that now because we don't need it yet, right? I, I just want to read a part of it. Wonderful. So, so many people fear the stigma of being marked yeah. as, as old and Hearing aids are one of those stigmas. Mm-hmm. Walkers, rollators are. We tried, my siblings and I tried very hard with my parents, but especially my dad on, on these issues. He was just you know, steadfast against them. And the way we actually got him to use what was essentially a cane was we started calling it a walking stick. So that was kind of just a matter of, of language. Right. And walking stick, well, that sort of inspires you to think that you're an English country gentleman and you're wearing a you know, tweed and this and that, and not a, you know, an older person who's reliant on, on this tool. The same thing is true with walkers and whatnot. And I think we need to realize there are trade-offs. And what is more important than our continued independence and mobility? Just about nothing, you know, in my book. It is a hard step to accept that you may need a little help. And I had this conversation with my dad many times and and did not succeed. But the book sort of talks about the many ways I tried to do it because he would then have greater independence for a longer period of time or so. I hoped and so the professionals said. So here, when the time comes or before the time comes, I hope that I can go back to my list. And initially the list was meant to sort of (laughs) accountability to myself. And and I have started using it that way now because to go back and say, well, okay, I am going to use this tool to help me so that I can preserve more of of this. And uh, I think someone who got an early copy of the book was wrote me today and said, oh, you know, the Scandinavians have even a new rollator. It's so high tech and high, high function, high design. You know, who wouldn't want to use it? I'm like, you know, I'm sure it's lovely, but it's still putting a lipstick on a pig, but we need to, we need to sort of play around with our mind. Yeah. I mean, where, where my thoughts are going as you're talking is, and I think of my, my journey with my friends with HIV and AIDS and my friends who died at what point before you, we die, do we surrender 
to what the physical reality is that we're living in. I remember my mom, up until her early 90s, she, she lived in a walk-up. She had There was no elevator, one flight up, and she tried to camouflage for me that mm-hmm. she had a hard time walking up the steps. Right. You know, and there was great effort. And even with the apartment walking from the kitchen to the living room, she had to hold on to the walls to get to the sofa. But everything was almost like a choreographed dance, so I wouldn't notice. And of course, I did. It's so much easier to just say, okay, this is where it is, right? You know, it is and it isn't. And one of the things I learned, so I start off kind of snarky and sassy in this book. And I'm, you know, I'm the son who knows everything and I'm keeping my list and then I'm writing about it in the book. And my parents have both passed now. And I came to have a much greater deal, much greater depth of empathy for them and and the choices they were making, because so many of them were fear-based. And fear is a very real thing. I have, I have fears. And so I'm hoping, you know, here to unpack that fear a little bit, to bring some humor to some of those situations as well, because they're, they're very common too. I mean, I have heard so many stories from families about all of these issues. Can I tell you one, one little story? That's please do. It's been one of the most common ones. And my parents, they, they lived in a house that was actually on a cliff. This is a real cliff, like looking down at the beach. Mm-hmm. And they, they were not near their children. And they loved, they loved it there. And it was beautiful. And there was a time, I guess, when they were in their 80s, we wanted to have a conversation with them about moving into a continuing care facility. Yeah. Where they would be both closer to my brother and better protected over time. And so my brother took them on a tour of a place near them. And it was a very nice facility. And I think they had lunch and there was a delicious salmon dish. And then my brother said to them after the tour, so what did you think? And my mother, (laughs) she just says, well, you know, Jay, I don't like fish. End of conversation. Yeah. And then my dad said um, to him, you know, never, we're going to age in place. But then the thing that they both said was, but we don't want to be a burden to you children. Yeah. That is, that is sort of the common theme that I have heard from so many people. You know, parents and elders say, we don't want to become a burden. And then we, they make choices that make them a burden. And my parents made a series of choices that certainly created a burden on, on us. I'm not saying that without love, but there were calls in the middle of the night, 9-11, hiring health aides, firing health aides. They were still out by the cliff. There was weather. So I'm hoping that both I and I hope that other people will, will sort of realize the uh, contradiction between some of the choices we make and the statement, I won't, do not want to become a burden to you. And I actually have, two years ago, I signed up for one of these continuing care communities here in, in North Carolina. I'm going to tell you, it was hard to go on that tour. It was yeah. hard to look into the future, but I wanted to do better. And I did not want to be a burden to my three nieces who might, you know, sort of have to step up. So I made a deposit and now I don't have to think about it for a while. And, you know, and we'll see what happens. But those are the kinds of decisions we all can make that can make a difference and sort of align us with the values that, we, mm-hmm. that we're espousing too. I, I just so applaud you for making that choice and putting the deposit down because... In my mind, it means when the moment comes, you can still decide yes or no. You can make decisions. And it helps uh, that there's a 10-year waiting list, too. So nobody's going to be calling. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a dance between children and their parents. 
Like my mom told me she was on, she had put herself on a waiting list for a place. Mm-hmm. And when I checked the place, she had lied. She had never done it. It was just the way to, that's the way she played that game, right? Because she didn't want to hear me nagging. Right. My dad would lie about taking his medication and then he would oh. have a 9-11 episode and we'd find out that he'd been throwing the, you know, the high blood pressure medication in the toilet for some reason. Yeah. Lying to my doctors. And, and so I'm not going to lie about my meds. I'm not going to lie to my doctors. Those are two things that I have done somewhat in the past. I'm not a doctor and I've seen, you know, I've seen studies and I've seen in real life, you know, what can happen. Since we both have been talking about our parents, the last item in your book, which is, is beautiful and poignant and I think so relevant for all of us, you write about your parents a lot as sort of real life data that informs what you're writing about. Yeah. But the last I want is I won't be disappointed in my life. And on one level to me, that feels like, well, yeah, that's a no brainer, but it takes intention to get there as well, doesn't it? Would you talk about that since that's the last I won't that's in your book? Yes. When I was younger, and I'd say up until, you know, up until my late 50s, early 60s, I judged myself based on what are called resume virtues. You know, what was my job title? How much money did I make? How many people was I managing? You know, those kind of um, external elements are are very much a part of what American success is defined as. And my father and I, I, you know, my father was very much that way. And he was a very successful person as, as, as a journalist and and as a professor at NYU over time. So into, into my sixties, I just have been thinking more about what matters to me, how I want people to think about me. I don't really want people to think about me. Oh, he was executive editor at, at Time Magazine, or he was a this or a that. That's not who I am. And there are these values called eulogy values. And those are basically, you know, if you and I were to be at each other's funerals now, what would we want people to be saying about us? Yeah. I'm hoping that people might say things like, you know, he was kind, he was a good listener, he loved his family, whatever, whatever they may be. But that's kind of a real shift in how you live your life. So this really came sort of to a head a couple of years before my dad died. And he asked me one day, like, what matters to you? And this was a very undad-like question because yeah. it was much more in his head, not in his heart. I was kind of shocked. And I kind of stumbled through an answer that was my my husband at the time, my family, my health. It wasn't particularly articulate, but I, I think I hid most of the notes that, that were true. And, and then I, I said to him, Dad, so what about you? What matters to you? And he was the man who had been so strong in his resume virtues. And he looked at me and he he shrugged his shoulders and just kind of said, hmm, I don't know. Mm. And that made me profoundly sad for him, especially because after he died, he was remembered for being a wonderful teacher and for being a mentor to, to so many. But he did not, he did not feel that. He did not see himself that way. I think that Again, it's about how to reshape how we see each other, how we see ourselves, mm-hmm. as well as to make decisions that are more you know, yeah. in alignment with who we want, who we say we want to be. 
I'd love to end with a more personal question for you, if you don't mind. Maybe. (laughs) Well, this is all in the book. I'm just ripping off the book. You're very open about the fact that you entered your 60s -hmm. and you were getting divorced. Yes. Because there can be a certain comfort of being coupled, entering into older age, comfortably partnered, whether it's a working relationship or not, is a whole other conversation. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but almost like a security blanket is taken away. So as you look forward to your own life, it can be around work, around personal, whatever. And because this is called the My Fourth Act podcast, the question is, so what are things that Stephen wants more of in his life or less of in his life? Because for many of us, this is a chance to be intentional about how we want to create our own life going forward. Well, that's a very pertinent question. And I think it's it's especially pertinent, pertinent, as you alluded to earlier, as we're coming out of this pandemic. Yeah. And so we've lived sort of quietly, homebound in certain ways. I've I've been much more introverted and, and inward focused. And, and now we're kind of crossing this threshold. And it provides an opportunity for decisions and choices. And so I'm trying to you know, decide, well, do I want to go back to like traveling like every other week to do this or to do that? Do I want to stay so, so busy in that way? Or how can I find new ways to do the things that I, for my work, you know, for my personal life and yet stay, stay grounded and, and stay more present. That's something I'm very sort of actively struggling with right now. I don't, I don't have the answer to it other than this is the optimist in me saying the pandemic and now this exit from the pandemic is giving me and many others the opportunity to see more clearly how we want to live. And then we go and we make our choices and then we can make different choices again, but it's like a wide open field and it's a, it's a little scary too. I have to say. Well, I bet what I loved about you said is, it's an open field and we get to make the choices. It can feel uncomfortable when the choices aren't clear yet. But the key word for me was that we we do get to make some choices, which is awesome. And we should not, and I say to myself, do not be held back by the fear of this big field. Yeah. Run into it. Nice. I had another question, but that was the perfect ending. So I want to stop here. That was just a wonderful final statement. For our listeners who are going, gosh, I want to read more about Stephen. The books he's written, obviously, I'm the title again, Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old. But where would you like to direct people to find out more about you and, and all the other things you do? Well, I have a website, mm-hmm. stephenpetro.com. So um, that, has, that has links pretty much to everything that I've done, way more than anybody would want. And to my other books and, and so on. So that would that would be a great place to start. Thank you for allowing me to mention that. Thank you for the conversation, Stephen. It was great to be with you today. Bye-bye. Bye. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.